0: Welcome to High Tea. I'm your host Jenna V, and we're here at Grow on Daily Hive. First of all, we want to thank our Uh, presenting sponsors, Niche and CannabisWise, for setting up this podcast and giving us all the love. So today we have a really special guest with us today. We have Dan Sutton here. He's the founder and CEO of Tantalus Labs, born and raised in Vancouver, BC. If you don't know, Tantalus Labs runs an environmentally controlled greenhouse engineered specifically for cannabis. They call it the Sun Lab. This includes, obviously, sun-grown cannabis, the use of rainwater. And with all this, I thought we could talk a little bit about the environmental impact of cannabis cannabis and cannabis production, and really with this up-and-coming industry, non-medical industry, which is something, you know, surprisingly, we're not hearing a lot about the environment. I was really intrigued by Dan's TED Talk titled, Cannabis is Dirty Little Secret. So if you haven't checked that out, you totally should. Thanks for being with us today, Dan.
1: This is like my day. Like I'm super, super excited to be here, and we don't get to have this conversation often enough.
0: Absolutely. So, why don't you start with maybe telling us a little bit
1: about yourself,
0: your background, where you come from, and how you got into the space?
1: Sure. Wow. Well, yeah, I am a born Vancouverite. I I went to high school here and university at UVic, where there is certainly a lot of environmental leanings, and it's kind of like one of the especially bleeding edge areas in environmental economics. I studied economics both in a a classical and and more novel sense there, but only got an undergraduate degree, so I'm in the presence of my academic superior here. And, uh, definitely got like a double PhD masters in smoking weed, which is like, a huge <laughs> part of the culture at EVIC. And, uh, and I guess like, so the seeds of like, it's, it's lack of demonization in my life or just kind of general distress with social sentiment around cannabis, mm-hmm. uh, which has been getting more and more liberal ever since. Um, and yeah, my, my professional background comes from, I, am hesitant to say the finance sector, but I guess that's probably the most accurate description I worked in business development for startups as soon as I graduated university in 2008, which is like one of the toughest times in history to have graduated with some form of financial designation. uh, And kind of learned the Swiss Army Knife tricks of the trade of, you know, getting companies funded, taking ideas and turning them into actual operations, and got to work in some really cool sectors, uh, including nuclear f- fuel development, uh, which was just nuts and really, really interesting. And I got a crash course in like physics and chemistry in a way that I'm sure most academics would be appalled by. Uh, but then also graduated uh, to some work in high field magnetics, in mining, uh, and in software. And so I got kind of a smorgasbord taste in my 20s of a variety of different Innovation industries, and, and probably knew all along the way that entrepreneurship was an inevitability for me. Mm-hmm. And then, really early on in the whole MMPR, ACMPR saga, I was introduced to the upcoming then legislation in, in sort of mid 2012. Okay. And I thought, you know, BC has this awesome agricultural sector. Uh, we've obviously got a deep rooted history in cannabis, which I can say candidly I was pretty familiar with, <laughs> uh, and the the amalgamation of those two mindsets and those two skill sets is going to represent a significant competitive advantage for this province over time and and you know who's it going to be is it, is it going to be big pharma or big ag or dark horse entrepreneurs and yeah. so somehow luckily i convinced myself that this might be a good idea and then i convinced a bunch of other people that tunnel slabs would be a good idea and then they all have been continuing to convince each other and me as we've been building the team and building the investor base and that kind of thing. And I guess the the rest is history on that front.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, running an environmentally controlled greenhouse, like how did you decide that that was the approach that you guys were going to take? And and how did you get there?
1: Yes, so cool. And and candidly, I think, you know, my first learnings in this industry, I was probably pretty convinced for the first three or four months of our kind of pre-feasibility or exploratory phase that, we were going to grow this in growth sheds. That, that seemed to be how cannabis was grown, and that was the status quo for, I mean, you know, there may, maybe not academic articles, but there's a variety of resources on the internet, and, and we're in 2012 about how to cultivate cannabis consistently or how to cultivate it at increasing scale. Um, and so I sat down with my kind of original advisory board, which was comprised of a specialist in nursery services, uh, a specialist in, in greenhouse horticulture and greenhouse science, My uncle, who's a a PhD biologist, plant biologist, Mm -hmm. uh, and then we did have some help uh, from a a specialist in pharmaceuticals, and they just couldn't get past the notion that, like, you grow stuff in greenhouses, like, this is how you grow things, and I was like, grow, like, what? They're, like, pretty much everything, And, and there's no reason why a leafy green plant like cannabis wouldn't be cultivated. Right. Uh, so then we started to impa- unpack, you know, the quality assurance problem and realized that was going to be more complex than indoor quite substantially and like mm-hmm. I think that that was probably a turning point for a lot of early LPs. They're like, uh, it's just too hard to QA, a greenhouse, we're not going to bother. Yeah. And then you unpack the security problem and you're like, well, it's a glass box so the security is a lot different than if it was, you know, a massive refrigerated warehouse or something like that. Yeah. Um, but we managed to convince ourselves that it was going to be worth it in both instances. And really the original manifestation of that philosophy was because we wanted to cultivate the best quality flower. Like we really wanted to give the plant the best environment in which to thrive. And it was only after we then what I realize now was a very rough shot financial model Mm compared to what we're doing now. Uh, and, and then an environmental impacts analysis that we were like, Oh, and it also costs way less to grow it in a greenhouse and it, produces way less waste and way less carbon impact and like all these other great uh, environmental metrics and at that point it was sort of unignorable we're like okay it's going to be super hard and we're going to be unpacking problems that other people haven't unpacked yet Mm -hmm. Um, but we were all kind of convinced that well now I I believe with every fiber of my being that the best cannabis on earth will be grown in greenhouses in just a few years time and that the age of the indoor production facilities is going to be largely behind us there will be specialist facilities that do just fine Um, but large scale cannabis production indoors is just laughably asinine from like an economics (laughs) academic or, or policy perspective.
0: Okay, so if we can rewind for folks who are like 101, kind of, maybe they don't know too much about cannabis cultivation, what are kind of the environmental things that we need to be worried about when it comes to cannabis production? I've been pretty shocked by how absent that's been from all this kind of legislative discussion around, you know, what what the future industry is going to look like. We hear a lot about the dollars, but we don't actually hear about what kind of substantial impact this could have on, on the environment uh, more generally.
1: Yeah, right. And and I think, like, I always frame this in the context of versus a greenhouse just because that's the paradigm through which I've seen it. But, like, cannabis will have environmental uh, complications no matter how we grow it. Even if you're going to grow it outdoors, there's still, you got to clear fields, you got to do these things. So it's a question of how to do this in the most optimized way where you're, I guess, producing sustainably or as regeneratively as possible. I and mean, that's kind of the new trend that we're talking about is not let's get net zero, like, let's get net... Recommitting back to the earth, back to the soil.
0: Um, so regenerative, regenerative is like a cycle, right? That right. you use everything and you put it back into the soil, etc. cetera.
1: Your, the, the compost that you're creating from your plant waste should then be going to like remediate other soil. And right. I mean, there's a v- variety of, of different potential avenues to explore on that, and it is still a, a pretty new concept. But when you look at just aggregate electricity demand acknowledging that there are areas in canada where there is cleaner electricity but from a north american perspective you know 40 to 60 percent of our of our energy is super dirty electricity is super dirty depending on who you ask and that's usually you know coal-fired plants or or even oil oil oil-fired stuff and then natural gas is sort of somewhere in that spectrum right um but using fossil fuels to generate electricity is you know not only carbon intensive but it's it's also a pretty short-term way to think. Uh, So I love BC Hydro, and I love the fact that we're generating electricity through hydro dams here, but that also has its own environmental implications. Uh, You know, damming the, the Seymour watershed had implications at that time, and there are ongoing maintenance costs that do create environmental impact. So assuming then electricity you want to use less of it probably (laughs) you know there's no way to get around the notion that the more the less electricity you use especially when you can find substantial reductions in electricity demand uh that's a net positive that's that's a good thing to be pursuing in in cannabis cultivation so uh the numbers are are super staggering and i was you know privileged to be able to research this for the ted talk that you mentioned thanks for for calling that into action and if you want all of this in eight minutes that's the best place to go But, uh, you know, in in really energy-intensive states like California, where average energy use per household is really high, and also the state's aggregate number of households is really high, uh, uh, indoor cannabis cultivation today is estimated to account for 3% of all the electricity use in California. Like, it's a staggering amount of electricity. That is wild. And across North America, that averages out to about 1% of our aggregate North American electricity demand. Wow. So you frame that up from the context of like, okay, well, we all know we've been investing in renewables. We all know we've been looking to get cleaner cleaner electricity. All of the solar panels in North America only account for less than 1% of the aggregate electricity generation. So we are not even close to offsetting all the work that's been done from the solar industry because of this uh, you know, relatively dirty and, and high energy use indoor cultivation style. Now, what a lot of people don't realize is that it's actually a vicious cycle when it comes to indoor production because you're not just paying for lights. Certainly, you know, tight arrays of 1,000-watt double-ended light bulbs uh, that, that demand a lot of electricity, draw a lot of amps to be able to run, that is a huge demand on electricity in and of itself to create an inferior light input to your plant that you would get from the sun. Uh, but that also creates heat and then you have to use ac to reduce that temperature and then that messes up can i swear on this you sure can that fucks up your humidity <laughs> and dr dandy grower humidity is going to be one of your key risk mitigators around disease or mold or issues with crop health and right. humidity is a really important barometer you see what i did there um and and so you you end up borrowing from peter to pay paul and all these like you know, ongoing scenarios, like in a, in a drug analogy, it's like the side effects from this pill make me not sleep. So then I need sleeping pills and that messes up my digestion. Right. Uh, so we're, we're actually seeing, uh, uh, even in environmentally controlled greenhouses that do have a lot of environmental, you know, technology and uh, mechanization and infrastructure in ours, about a 90% reduction per square meter in the demand for electricity that you would need relative to indoor. Wow. And as we see a transition to lower levels of control, as people get more dialed in on you know specific regional cultivation, if, if you were to throw cannabis outside for the summer in the Gulf Islands, spoiler alert, it's been happening for like 40 years, <laughs> uh, it does an amazing job. Uh, just in and of its own environment so it's feasible that we could see regulated production that requires even less control over the next few years and and that could reduce your energy savings substantially Mm -hmm. but even for more traditional greenhouse growing i know i've been rambling on clothes on this (laughs) is uh the switch from indoor to greenhouse is like a massive roi opportunity The fine-tuning of greenhouses is still an awesome opportunity in reducing the amount of natural gas you use for heating, finding areas that make the most sense to grow, like regional selection. These are all awesome things. Before we start dialing those knobs in and Mm -hmm. finding sustainable packaging and all that stuff, Mm -hmm. we're talking about a really substantially impactful, like globally impactful reduction of energy demand just from switching from indoor to greenhouse, which... If you're not, Even if you're not an environmentalist or you don't like the environment, you should do out of your own economic self-interest anyway. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm really big on that message. It doesn't have to be the fanciest greenhouse in the world. We love Sun Lab, and it's a really cool piece of infrastructure, but any greenhouse will do when it comes to sustainability of cannabis.
0: So when thinking about the Sun Lab and kind of meeting the Health Canada requirements, what have been maybe the one or two most challenging things things that are unique to operating let's say a greenhouse over an indoor uh, facility
1: that's a great question and i think other greenhouse operators that i've spoken to in the acnpr would agree with this that there there are two areas of our facility really if we want to break it down from a health canada perspective there's a greenhouse that has some degree of air filtration but not perfect air filtration it has some degree of uh you know sanitation standard that comes from reducing the amount of variables in the environment, things like pest inputs or pathogens or what have you, but ultimately it's a greenhouse. It's just a beautiful glass box that will come, even if it doesn't represent the exact biome that is existing outside of that greenhouse, it will come to represent some form of biome. There's going to be other life in that environment that isn't just plants. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we did some great work uh, with a local company called BioBest on how to use uh, predatory pest remediation. I'm not actually supposed to use that term. We came up with like something sexier for it, but that's really what it is, is, uh, you know, creating... A population of pests that doesn't actually predate on our cannabis plants, but rather predates on the insects that do predate on that cannabis plant.
0: Oh, it's like the episode of The Simpsons where you release the <laughs> the yeah.
1: animal to get the animal, and then you release
0: the other animal. Yeah,
1: and the and the gorillas freeze in the winter. That was the punchline. <laughs> Don't test me on The Simpsons. Like I mean, it's hyper nerdy on The Simpsons over here. Uh, and and so yeah, that's it's really cool because. <clears throat> We, they're like our little symbiotic army, you know? We feed them pests because mm-hmm. we don't want those pests. And they just live and exist in our greenhouse and they keep us safe and we keep them fed, I guess. Um, and, and so that in the context to a pharmaceutical clean room, like that is what Health Canada originally started to license the first, you know, however many licenses before whatever the first greenhouse one, maybe it was Hydropothecary or Fria it was a big paradigm shift for them to wrap their head around the fact that, okay, the cannabis is going to be grown in an environment that is not, you know, like a NASA lab that you Mm -hmm. could put in space, but then it is going to be processed in an area that is. Right. So we have this packaging line, this processing area, trimming facilities, all of which do have, you know, a degree of quality assurance that you'd be familiar with if you are ever involved in drug manufacture. Uh, I, I albeit to really process an agricultural plant which we will come back to those qualms I'm sure <laughs> um, but yeah that that was a big pill for health Canada to swallow and eventually get over is the notion that it's it's we don't we don't need to be wearing face masks and hair nets in a greenhouse environment that is ultimately you know it does have pollen coming through and various things from the outdoor environment. mm mm-hmm.
0: Um, And what about security? Are there different security concerns, as you mentioned, just being a glass box compared to being in a factory
1: or facility? I could tell you, but I would have to tell you. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, for us, I think it largely comes down to having a badass fence line. That's like, for me, like in the context of actual threat vectors, and I know a fair amount about security because of my education through the last five years, but like the security people that we deal with are, are deeply specialized, and I'm probably gonna butcher their, their words here. But like, when you look at what are the risk factors of security in a, a, an ACMP RLP, I think you know, digital security considerations, uh, patient data management, like right. file protection, like these are way more likely arenas or threat vectors where you could face serious challenges. Uh, and the physical security piece it is obviously hugely important for an ACMPR licensed producer facility, but like for us, the actual defensive threat, really the fence line sends the best message. Yeah. You know, if you come into our fence line and try to get within our sort of concentric envelopes of increasing security level that really center around our vault, you're going to run into all kinds of problems as well. I really don't advise that you do it, <laughs> uh, but, uh, it's, it's. It was all about surveillance. It was all about access control. It was all about um, assessing areas of higher risk. Unlikely that someone's gonna break into a greenhouse and steal 2,000 six foot long flowering late stage female cannabis plants. Mm You need uh, need need multiple semi-trucks to make that happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we just said, okay, well the dried cannabis is really the largest area of concern and that happens to be inside a, a, a really tight vault that I guess now is a far less relevant piece of our infrastructure. But yeah. in the early stages of our licensing, it was pretty critical.
0: Absolutely. Um, do you think that there's any incentives or regulations that like, the federal government can maybe put in place to kind of encourage producers to go a bit greener?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we submitted a 78-page policy document on this exact topic, uh, we have collaborated on that with a really uh, great group of policy specialists out of the UK called Hanway and Associates that now are, are leading a, a day-by-day evolution of their medical cannabis conversation, and, and medical cannabis may become a, a real political topic of discussion in the UK far earlier than any of us have anticipated, partly because of good grassroots policy work by groups like that. Um, but, I mean, the reasons to grow in greenhouses are abundant, and you know, whether it be from an environmental perspective, whether it be from an economic sustainability, ergo long-term job creation perspective, new technical skills. I mean, the people that we're hiring at Sunlab are, are really strange, talented, esoteric skill sets. You know, whether it be maintenance tech with some with some security specialization or a cultivation associate that's dabbled in lab work like these are these are cool specialists to be having in your municipalities yeah Um, and when it comes to actual like you know recommendations that we made i think preferential treatment in terms of um whether it be licensing fees from a municipality or eventual licensing fees from a federal body uh maybe tax treatment I far would rather, pref- I mean, I would prefer to use incentives rather than punishments for other cannabis producers, for which sure. like, we're going to talk about carbon tax, which is going to stress the entire industry out. Yeah. Uh, but um, it, it it's it's an arena that I think we need to have deep discussions on because once we decide that there are viable incentives, I mean, we have great standards for, for real estate you know, development like LEED and, and these yeah. other cool things. And like we built our facility from the ground up. Uh, without a lot of institutional support, maybe there wasn't any institutional support, to some degree. Um, but it's it's yeah, it's, it's absolutely an area where it, it would be so easy to just make a, you know a couple little moves, and, and everyone would say, "Oh, the government's incentivizing this. The economics are incentivizing this. My you know passion for sustainability is incentivizing this. There's no way to go wrong."
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think that there are a lot of producers out there that are paying more attention to the kind of environmental impact of their production?
1: Uh, I've seen some awesome moves from the outdoor growing enthusiasts and the outdoor growing uh, community that want to participate in the legal market, that may be further afield. I I don't really know how all that policy is shaping up. Uh, the greenhouse producers certainly all do lean into some messaging around, you know, grown by the sun or something like that. Now, whether they're using that as a differentiator on, on product quality or more in the sustainability messaging is sort of unique firm to firm. Mm Um, but, yeah, I think, if I'm candid, the primary motivator for greenhouse cannabis production amongst the LPs or amongst any, like, scaled cannabis firm is probably the economics. Yeah. Uh, and fine. Like, I don't, I don't care how you get to the conclusion. <laughs> as Absolutely. Long as, you're, as long as you're doing it the right way. It happens to be this incredible in- intersectionality between the economics and, and uh, lower energy demand production. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I guess... I'm a BC guy, I'm a granola muncher at the core of my being. so I, I can't help but be super stoked on that. And I not, did not read that
0: year, you which... grew up in kits. <laughs> yes,
1: I grew up in kits. I grew up hiking these local mountains. I mean it's cool. it's, it's it's horrible the stereotypes. I was a full like snowboarder <laughs> bro when I was a kid, like skater kid, like that's that. Yeah. But uh, no and, and so that that was such an important part of us getting our first, let's say, ten employees, finding people like I've actually never experienced anything like it in any firm I've ever been to where people would bang down the door for a job we didn't even have yet. Right. They're like, you guys are going to need me eventually. I want this job. You guys are exactly the kind of company that like would matter to me. And there are tough days in NELP. Like there are tough days at Tantalus Labs. And when someone can lean back, when I can lean back and say, this is a, this is a rough go, we're pushing through it, but it's not just for my check. It's because this is important and like this matters. Mm-hmm you get a level of commitment from people that you could never really just pay for. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's one of my favorite facets of, the, of what you would call the Townless Labs brand, I guess, which is just like our, our story played out through the way that we articulate mm-hmm. it. Uh, and, and people notice, they're like, oh, these guys deeply care about sustainability and ag tech, and like, I'm that person, like, I'm that girl, yeah. I'm that guy, and I want to be a part of that. Yeah. Uh, and as a result, we have a, an incredible team of specialists that's growing every day.
0: How many people do you have there at Tangents Labs now?
1: If we have eighteen. Oh wow! Running a yeah. Cool. A Seventy-five thousand square foot facility, but seven of those eighteen are actually like marketing, finance, admin—you uh, know, th- those kind of humans. So they don't even do the operations. Mm-hmm. So I think we are adding to our team pretty substantially right now. We'll probably be twenty or twenty-five by the end of the year. Okay. Uh, but the thing about a sun lab is it will never really get to like a hundred. It might get to forty, uh, depending on you know, what kind of ancillary activities we want to do. If we want to internalize oil extraction or like, you know, an edibles production line or something like that, we could see some diversification of the specializations. But we've been really good with automation and mechanization, not in a like robots moving the plants around way, but in in a way that controls process, controls environment, controls like all of these parameters that affect plant health. And so we just don't need a ton of people uh, to run the whole squad. And, and that's, to me, the like best thing you can do for business defensibility. Mm-hmm. We just need a, a handful of patients and, and we're going to be okay.
0: Yeah. And with your... So I, I, uh, I read the white paper with um, Hanaway Associates. Where, how did you guys distribute that? What Did you guys send that out to politicians? What was the response? It just seems like nobody's talking about it. So I'm just wondering how, how it got out there, what the feedback you got was...
1: Yeah, so we did stakeholder maps there um, with the federal government, with the British Columbian provincial government, with a variety of municipal governments kind of dotted throughout the country. And I think there were some like municipal distribution mediums. You could like give it to the Canadian, I'm going to butcher it, I don't know, the Canadian Association of Municipalities or something like that. Uh, And then they they got it out for us too. And and in the federal government, we were looking both for environmental policy makers and then drug policy people Mm -hmm. and then you know, politicians, bureaucrats, it was a pretty diverse, uh, different, you know, differentiated group of people because we just didn't really know who was going to pick up on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, sure enough, no one did. It was really weird. Like, it, it was almost eerie that it was just so ignored. Like, yeah. we, we, you know, we, we didn't even get emails back from like 90% of the people that we sent it to. And I think it's because it's an elephant in the room that as soon as you unpack it, it becomes such a political hot button. And like, there really is no answer right now. The answer is let the free market build what they want. And hopefully they build it in a long-term sustainable way from an economic and an environmental perspective. But like, no, no policymaker with these newly minted LPs wanted to be the first person to go in and create like sanctions on, on. Unsustainable production, mm-hmm. and uh, I think everybody just kind of wanted to stay away from that cannabis file altogether. Uh, but we were we were disappointed by the lack of political support there. There has been you know a, uh, sort of here and there slips and nips of uh, support from the academic community. Yes, but once again, it's it's sort of disjointed, and, and the best like, the best thing the academic community can do is be like, this is really smart, policymakers listen to this. I know it came from a private firm, but, like, it also happens to be really good, you know, policy analysis, and it's it's got some good data and science in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they still just ignore the academics, too. So we're in this together.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I do remember a few, um, like, submissions going in, and I think Riel or, or some other folks had started them. Yeah. And it was really interesting, too, because we had... Um, when I was teaching marijuana policy, I was looking for someone to come in and, t- and talk about the environmental impact of cannabis production. Couldn't find one person. And this yeah. is in Toronto, Ontario. You know, we'll bring people in. And so I think that it's really just kind of like this ignored pocket that might ex- implode later on. You know what I mean? Because people are just building facilities in any way that they want with no real eye to that. But um, you would know better than I
1: would. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think like... It's it's a hard pill for people to swallow, especially in a greenhouse context. But like, not everywhere in Canada is a great place to grow wheat. Not everywhere in Canada is a good place to grow an agricultural crop. Mm-hmm. And if you 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 know happen to live in northern Saskatchewan with a dream of cultivating cannabis, like you're gonna need to move if you do want to do it efficiently. Yeah. we've got the Fraser Valley, we've got Southern Vancouver Island, the Gulf Islands areas in the Kootenays. We got Southern Ontario, even mm-hmm. areas of Southern Quebec that are, are beautiful places to grow all different kinds of plants. Yeah. But like it, my, one of my early advisors, uh, a fellow by the name of Dr. Stephen Grossnickle, who's written textbooks, he's got a ton of policies, work, he's, he's an incredible genius. He's an absolutely brilliant guy. He's like kept on saying always, you know, I can grow pineapples in the Arctic, they're just going to be some expensive pineapples. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so uh, what is it about kind of where your facility is located? like the weather's obviously milder, but I mean, one thing that I noticed when I moved to Vancouver was it was 30 days of, uh, no sun. So how does that kind of impact, not just, you know, uh, you know, where you guys decide to put your facility, but also, I mean, is there supplementing and, and things like that that needs to happen?
1: Yeah. And I mean, we had a really dark first quarter, like yes. we ended up running veg times a lot longer in some plants. We ran some plants smaller. Like, we're, we're kind of experimenting with a bunch of different styles of cultivation because it looks like, you know, in the summer, this is an awesome place to grow weed. And for three cycles, you know, three full cannabis growth cycles, that's a, it's a fine time to do it. But if you want to get that fourth, you're going to have to be a bit cute about it. And that might be longer flowering times. Mm-hmm. It certainly will be supplemental lighting in the form of uh, day-length extension. Okay. Which actually, like, even if you were in... An equatorial country you still might have to consider that at some points in your growth cycle because you will need to give the plant more light than just its 12 to 12 life light cycle but yes every commercial greenhouse in this area of the world uses photoperiod extension and like greenhouses are not a perfect solution yet mm-hmm. If you want to do a one season field crop like run one set of plants like to be 20 feet tall all summer long that's gonna be your most sustainable way to cultivate cannabis Outdoors, I can't wait to do it. I hope the tunnelist gets a chance to bite bite off a chunk of that problem because it's going to be so so interesting to do it in a quality assured context. Yeah, um, but I think it's a misconception that the light levels are too low here. Like you come here and you're like, it's darker than Toronto, so it I must so be. so sad. Yeah, well fair. I mean, the light level's maybe too dark for humans. Like if you're yeah. not used to it. Uh, I thrive in the dark clearly because I was born here. So it's like, yes, the rain. I need to stay in and watch movies for three months. Um, but uh, you know, c- cannabis has an upper limit on the amount of light that it can take in. Like I, I think you know, Northern California is a great example of a beautiful place to cultivate cannabis. That sometimes it gets a little too hot and actually stunts the plant's growth and people don't realize that that exceptional light level combined with even a slightly out of whack heat level is actually a way worse input to the crop than a stable light level that's a bit lower and a stable heat level that's also a bit lower. Right. So, I mean, I'm sure that there are plenty of people that will listen to this that may disagree with me here, but we like to keep our cannabis around 27 degrees Celsius and in southern ontario in the summer that can be really hard to do Mm -hmm. because it gets super hot there inside a glass box it's always sort of five or seven degrees hotter than it is outside so mucky too and and the humidity gets crazy and then that is as i mentioned before a huge risk factor around a lot of the threats to passability through the acmpr standard if it's there's any mold right a variety of different kinds of mildews and and that humidity also it can leave the plants weakened and susceptible to disease susceptible to pest infestation, uh, problems that a variety of LPs have have been struggling with Mm -hmm. that we are just passively a, a little bit less disposed to because our, you know, our summer is sort of 25 degrees. Our winter is sort of five degrees. It's a little wet and ventilation is a huge part of, of how we make our greenhouse successful for, for growing cannabis. Um, but that, this analogy always kind of leads me to the notion that like we're growing amazing tomatoes in this area of the world, we're growing amazing peppers, there's even like some smaller greenhouses that are doing fruit in the summertime and it's, it's, it's great, it's a great place to grow plants, it's a great place to grow cannabis and it's not because we need to like replicate nature, you know, in a box, it's because we only need to nudge nature in the right direction and right. keep the plants a bit drier than they might normally be right? Uh, to have a great cultivation cycle.
0: Yeah. That's totally fair. And what about, uh, I know I remember this thread on Twitter a long time ago where we were, people were putting out calls on, you know, is there any sustainable packaging that is childproof? I feel like that is, you know, really difficult. I always see photos from, um, patients that are just like buckets and buckets of containers and other kinds of, you know, packaging. Um, so, you know, what, what do you, what are you guys doing on on the (coughs) packaging front?
1: Yeah. So cool. And I mean, we've unpacked this problem in a variety of different ways because it is true that, uh, let's say biodegradable packaging, which absent like a really expensive energy intensive processes to make that packaging is probably like our best way to not leave artifacts of our, of our consumption. Like, right. Okay. This package will go away in a few years if we throw it in the dump instead of this plastic package that will exist maybe for 10,000 years, uh, which is an important consideration. So uh, that that packaging doesn't exist in a child-proof, resealable context that would be compliant with the ACMPR. <clears throat> we are unpacking a few uh, child-resistant packaging specific complications with uh, with our with our regulator right now, and it's they're very meticulously detailed. Like they really don't want a problem with a kid opening some of this package and somehow hurting themselves. I don't really follow that logic, but like anyway, that's just they're they're dead serious, right? Um, they're very really so, serious. They're dead serious. Yeah. They really want this to be chop and resealable and Got have it. a lab that's not us. Say Got that it. that's what that is. Got and that's, that's what the regulator does. I keep telling everybody, you can't blame the ref. Like, this is what this is. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we originally had a conversation around repurposing glass packaging. So we said, okay, we want to do a beautiful glass jar with a resealable lid. Uh, it's, <clears throat> what do you call it? Screen printed. And it just looks gorgeous. It's a great... thing to have on your coffee table if you honor cannabis in your household we honor cannabis in our households and we're like this is what we would want to see this is just like packaging that we would want to buy um and so then we thought okay well it's glass so people are probably more likely to reuse them maybe they'll give them as gifts maybe we can have a little thing on our blog that's like how to make a candle out of this Mm -hmm. And, and you know, I guess the, the the number one way to look at this, if we can do biodegradable great packaging, is give people packaging that's not totally useless as soon as it's open. Absolutely. Um, And then that kind of iterated into this realization that people were getting fed up with, you know, various LPs, just sending them these crazy packaging experiences every single time they ordered. Mm -hmm. So, Talents Labs intends to have repeat customers. We want people to open that first package and be like, oh, this is what I need. This is, this is really clean cannabis, you know, beautiful strains, really well grown, meticulously cared for. I'm happy with these guys. I want to buy from them again and again. And so we want to give that first packaging experience that's just like really cool, and and clearly people cared about it. And you open it up, and you're like, oh, like weed. It's treated with respect. Super
0: excited, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Someone like doesn't think weed is just like a ziploc bag thing. They're like they put time and energy and and meticulous care into the cultivation process, and then we want to honor that process with an unboxing experience. So the first time you order from Tantalus Labs, which I encourage all the (laughs) listeners of this show to do, you'll have this really cool and beautiful like our kind of you know, Cadillac. Like this is what this is what we would do every time if we could, and if we could do it in a sustainable way, it'd be super fun. And then the next order, we're just going to give you a reup. We're gonna, yeah. You can keep your existing glass jar, and we'll give you a, a, a packaged, beautiful bag. It's resealable. It's childproof. Maybe the closest. LP in comparison would be Tilray, uh, and, and that is going to serve as both a travel pouch, because you can bring it around with you without having a big jar in your pocket, mm-hmm. uh, and then also a refill to your, your more deluxe packaging Yeah,
0: experience. I think that's actually a really great idea, because um, I remember when I was with an LP, I really liked unwrapping the first box. It was super of exciting. It, okay. Everything was really pretty. There was like tissue and all that stuff. But afterwards, I'd get really annoyed. Sure. I was just sick of having all of these plastic jars. It's and more trips you, to the recycling bin. Yeah, I just don't know <laughs> what to, you know. I just And also, I didn't like carrying cannabis in those jars either. So right. uh, that sounds really... Um, Cool, but it seems really tricky to find something that meets the the requirements. Like even the childproof packaging piece um, can be really, really difficult.
1: Yeah, I mean, skip a step for other LPs that will inevitably come to this probably in the late stages of your pre sales inspection licensing. Like, you you need the individual package to have been tested itself you can't use an analog you can't use a different combination of lid and jar like you need that specific combination to have literally been held by a group of 250 or so children they try to open it for five minutes they can't there's only a handful of labs that can do this across north america so this is how it actually happens absolutely come on dude so the kids have five minutes and they if they can open it in five minutes then it's a fail And if they can't, or if 80% of them can't, then it's a pass.
0: And how old do you know how old these kids are? These are all these questions you might not
1: know. (laughs) I've been been, been reading up on this stuff. Like, I know the ISO 8731 standard on international packaging. (laughs) Tell me, tell me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, So I think the kids are five, and then they also do with seniors, because the seniors need to be able to open it. So, so it's make,
0: like a sweet spot in between the old and the young. Yeah, yeah. You make it too hard
1: to open and seniors can't get into it. We're going to have people that die because they don't have, they can't access their medication. Right. So in the, in the course of cannabis, that might not be quite as dire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But
0: packaging first. more generally for medications, yeah. Right,
1: right, right. Yeah, so, so just word of the wise, if you want to be an LP, get really good at packaging and only buy from suppliers that can guarantee that that specific package has been tested.
0: Wow. I had no idea. That's so interesting. Um... All right, I'm going to throw you a question here that I got from a friend of mine who is an environmentalist, Pat DeRoshi. Thanks, Pat. Pat. (laughs) So the federal price on carbon is set to rise to $50 per ton by 2022. Most economists believe that it has to actually continue to rise to $100 or $200 per ton in order for Canada to meet its climate targets. Um, Do you get the sense that cannabis producers are familiar um, with the rising price on carbon and the impact that this could have on their business plans and operations? Operations decades down the road.
1: I think they're absolutely not familiar with it, and I know this because I would be the most likely to be familiar with it, and I'm not that familiar with it. Uh, but I mean my candid answer to that is that not a lot of licensed producers are thinking very far down the road. Like this is a really exciting industry that requires, you know, day-to-day changes in strategy. And so it's kind of hard to be like, this is our six-month plan when you know you're inevitably gonna trash it as we go. But the rising price of carbon will affect producers, both in a greenhouse environment and indoor producers, more so if they are in an area where it is carbon-intensive to generate electricity. Of which there aren't like a ton in Canada, but like certainly if if you're running an off-grid facility that has diesel generators or something like that, like that's going to really hit you in the bottom line. Like mm-hmm. that's not that's not a facility that you want to be operating. Um, but then also there are natural gas heating considerations, both for indoor and uh, greenhouse-oriented producers. And so natural gas is like as good of a, of a carbon-efficient fossil fuel as you can get, but it still will have some cost. The thing is, is it just really depends how profitable per gram really cannabis continues to be. Mm-hmm. Like there are some people that are hypothesizing like an imminent commodity price crash. So that there's just so much like, like we saw in, in some segments of the market in Oregon, and that's what's going to happen to all of cannabis. I really don't think that that's actually how it's going to play out, but I don't have a crystal ball, so I always make allowances for, like, in that eventual scenario, right. there it will not have this crazy profit margin that will then justify, well, let's just build it wherever and put it wherever. And there really will be centralization of production, and, I mean, hopefully globalized centralization of production in agricultural regions that are just more efficient environmentally mm-hmm. i'd love to grow some cannabis in columbia it's an incredible place to grow a variety of different kinds of products and i mean I, I love cultivating in the fraser valley but columbia would be a whole different trip and it also would be inherently far less carbon intensive because mm-hmm. it's like all the things that we're trying to do at sun lab they just happen when the sun rises in columbia yeah. we're just trying to imitate columbia like a little <laughs> bit um so that, that's yeah, that, that's an interesting facet of that. But uh, yeah, I don't think anyone's really prepared for carbon tax. And, and it may have, an, uh, especially on commodity-grade producers, it will have a tangible impact on your mm-hmm. bottom
0: line. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed more so in the last few years that there's just been more greenhouses, more people that are approaching their business plans with the environment in mind? Or is it still kind of a peripheral thing for most producers or entrepreneurs that you run into?
1: Well, if you look at the... Funded capacity, uh, which is a, a metric on the stock market that I love to make fun of because it doesn't, count, it doesn't discount effectively for execution risk, but if you look at how, much, how many LPs have raised money on the back of building a new facility or expanding a facility, right. 70% plus of that infrastructure is destined to be greenhouses today. And, like, I'm really proud of that. I feel like Tanelis Labs is a huge part of that conversation, partly because we were putting out blog posts and really screaming for the rafters that greenhouses are way more efficient to cultivate in, both economically and environmentally, and also because we were in the back of the room talking to the bankers, talking to financial professionals, being like, guys, if you invest in a half a million square foot indoor production facility, it's going to be completely financially unsustainable in, like, a three-year time horizon. Mm -hmm. So we were kind of working both sides of the audience there, and I think Tanelis Labs was a big part of that. I don't think we can take full credit, but I think that we were a voice in that conversation, and that's, like, awesome. That's a social impact that we can put under our belt, even if Tannel Slavs is to go away tomorrow, which it won't, luckily, but I'm, re- I'm really stoked that we were a part of that conversation. And, uh, and so, but, all that said, it's not because we've inspired people with, like, a fighting mentality around environmental sustainability, it's because it's just an economic reality. You know, yeah. we can cultivate cannabis at a third the opex of, a, of an indoor production facility, and so if you believe that either you you won't have to grow cannabis indoors to achieve a high quality or that the average consumer is not as concerned about quality as they are about price. If you believe either of those things, mm-hmm. greenhouses are the only rational way forward.
0: Mm-hmm. And I always see these debates on Twitter about the quality of cannabis grown in the greenhouse versus in indoor facilities. Um, so what's your perspective on that? Just to kind of open up the can of worms. Maybe we can get a debate going sometime <laughs> in the future.
1: I'm, I'm all for it. and And... Whenever I'm having a debate, my tongue is firmly planted in my cheek. Like, I, I try not to get emotional about something. Like, if you bring my parents into it, I'll be pissed. But, like, we can have these discussions in a civilized way. you always get way. the, oh, he was so pissed at me. Dude, yeah, for sure. I've never turned it up past 3.5 out of 10 on Twitter, I promise. you got to see me in the boxing ring and then on the rugby field, and then we'll talk. Um, but... I think that there's no doubt that APEC, cannabis of apex quality is coming out of indoor environments today. That's the truth. And that's been 30 years worth of environmental meticulous shaping and knob twisting and light changes and new HVAC. There's been this whole legacy of technology that's been built around perfecting these indoor environments and, and really maximizing their light output from a synthetic source. Um, but then, okay, it begs the question of what is quality? Because for some people, quality is purity. Quality is rainwater inputs. Quality is, you know, a a plant that's representing its genetic potential in a natural way. For some people, quality is bag appeal. It's frost. It's like, how dank is this product? How potent is it? How crazy does it look? How well has it been trimmed? And I think both of those audiences are right in their own way. Um, But I, I kind of bring it back to town so i was, well, what are we going to do to do apex quality we're probably going to do some like really frosty beautiful strains that also are cultivated in, in a high purity uh you know whole mission. like that's really the whole thing that we're trying to do so the street will judge no I, there, there are a few cannabis quality experts that have been coming out of the woodwork and, and chatting with me recently and everyone has their perception of quality and i, I actually like when it comes to beautiful bud, like I've seen my fair share of it and I'm stoked that people want to take that art and move it to the next level, but the audience will decide what quality is. It's not up to me to say, Ken Tannel has great weed. Town Slabs has a great process to cultivate weed and we care very deeply about the meticulous details of drying and finishing and curing and humidity levels and bud moisture content, terpenography, like all these really cool metrics. But then once it's out of our hands, that's when the audience gets to decide, this is good quality, I like it, or not. Right. And we're not out here trying to say, like, this is what the quality is. But even if you were to take the most, like, street-oriented, bag-appeal-oriented metrics of quality, how frosty is it, how terpy is it, like, what does the bud look like when it's hand-trimmed? There's no doubt in my mind, categorically, the best cannabis in the world will come out of greenhouses in less than five years the ceiling's just higher Ooh! boom
0: yeah, fighting words
1: if we're so, not gonna do what someone else is like what john fowler's doing over at supreme is amazing like that yeah. bud is super super beautiful yeah and you know, he's also wedging his bets a little bit and growing some inside and so <laughs> we're we're gonna do our best out on the west coast but big up supreme like let's get it going
0: Awesome. So, you know, we've come to kind of the end of the show. Uh, if there was something that you could pass out there or tell to hopeful entrepreneurs that are kind of getting in this space, kind of on the environmental side, what would you say to them?
1: Yeah, so, so cool. And, like, there are a lot of different niches. Maybe please create biodegradable packaging that's child-proof and resealable. Like, that is truly a multimillion-dollar opportunity waiting to happen. Absolutely. And that's, that's really awesome. But... There are a lot of opportunities in cannabis to create exceptional financial returns in a relatively short-term time horizon, and that's attracting a diversity of entrepreneurial personalities. But there will also be like so much value creation, value creation in terms of wealth, value creation in terms of social progress, value creation in terms of just doing cool shit for its own sake that happens on a 10-year time. Mm-hmm. I'm lucky I'm 31 I get to think on a 10 year time horizon I've convinced my crazy board of directors to think on a 10 year time horizon my team thinks on a 10 year time horizon and that's when like really impactful things will come out of what will become a multi hundred billion dollar global industry yeah, Aaron Saul said at Lyft, it's going to be a trillion-dollar global industry. I never heard that word. Before. Trillion. I've never heard that. That's term a word lot of before. zeros. And so the value creation is abundant. It's all around us, and the real value will be created by people that are doing things for their own sake that will become financially successful, but not just because like there's a quick flip to be made. Right. And uh, we've we've turned down a few opportunities to you know take a truckload full of money and walk to a beach for the rest of our lives. And when you say no to those things, you're like, am I insane? And it was the best decisions that I've ever made. So stick with something that you want to do. Like, you know, decide something you can wake up and even when you're on your like 30th day in a row of 16 hours, like just be so stoked to go do and and feel like you have a responsibility to execute on.
0: Amazing. Uh, Dan Sutton from Tantalus Labs, thank you so much for being here today. Where can people find you online?
1: I am on Twitter at dsutton1986. That's also me on Instagram. You can follow Tantalus Labs on Twitter and Instagram as well. And just check out tantaluslabs.com. We've actually got a little makeover to that site coming up. And it's a very concise, simple sense of the things that we find important. And who knows? Maybe you'll think they're important too.
0: And if you're interested in the environmental conversation, make sure you uh, check out Dan's TED Talk, "Cannabis's Dirty Little Secret. It's a great little kind of compressed few minutes on the environmental impact of cannabis and cannabis production. Um, so that concludes our show. Thanks for joining us today. I want to give a special shout-out to Ryan Sullivan for editing, Paulo Di Teodoro for intro music, and, of course, Niche and Cannabis Wise for supporting this podcast. See you later.